Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 316th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Matt Sonnen. Matt is the founder and CEO of PFI Advisors, a consulting firm based out of Redondo Beach, California, that assists wirehouse advisors with the operational transition support they need to break away, and then trains and consults with the COOs, the chief operating officers of independent RAs, to better build their own infrastructures, processes, and culture to scale up their advisory businesses. What's unique about Matt, though, is how he and his wife has translated their years of hands-on support that they've provided to independent advisory firms to improve operations, tech stack, and scalability into creating an entire community for the industry's chief operating officers, aptly dubbed PFI's COO Society. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Matt and his team first learned what it really takes to stand up an established independent advisory firm from scratch when it breaks away from a wirehouse and has to quickly implement an entire operational infrastructure from office space and phone systems to CRM and investment and custodial technology. How Matt and his team then adapted their stand up from scratch breakaway experience to help RIA owners by implementing their own 10 page operational diagnostic questionnaire to fully understand each advisory firm's operational strengths and gaps across a wide range of domains from better onboarding with the firm's custodian or refining its systems to deliver planning to clients. And how Matt ultimately built his COO Society, an online coaching program and community for those operations professionals within independent RAs who are focused on those key technology, human resources, and business administration issues to help them to navigate growth at their own RAs and become better, more well-rounded COOs themselves. We also talk about how Matt stumbled into his own advisory career in the late 1990s as a 22-year-old recent college graduate after a recruiter found him a job as an operations point person for an ultra-high net worth top-producing team of four brokers at the Beverly Hills branch of Merrill Lynch. How after admittedly making the mistake of leaving Merrill to sell insurance on his own, Matt was recruited back by his formal Merrill team in 2008 to help them found and launch Luminous Capital, one of the very first breakaway independent REAs, which began with $1.7 billion in client assets. And how, after years of working closely with REAs affiliated with Focus Financial to consult on their operational efficiencies, Matt was inspired, and with a little nudging from his very entrepreneurial wife, to launch PFI Advisor so that he could offer his wealth of operations knowledge to consult with a wider range of breakaway brokers and REA owners, and gain the flexibility and control that independence provides to run his own consulting business however he wished while starting a family. And be certain to listen to the end where Matt shares how the unexpected illness and subsequent tragic death of his daughter, Layla, impacted Matt and his wife while they were still in the early stages of launching PFI Advisors. How Matt has learned through trial and error that as a consultant and business owner, gaining new businesses more than just stating what your firm does for those it serves, and instead is about explaining how those service offerings can solve for the specific pain points they're looking to get solved. And how Matt stays motivated through the words of the successful basketball coach from his alma mater that success can't be sustained simply by looking at whether you're winning and instead is ultimately about finding the self-satisfaction knowing that you're pushing your own limits by truly doing the best that you are personally capable of. 
And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Matt Sonnen. Welcome, Matt Sonnen, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting. I'm I'm really looking forward to the discussion today and and digging into a domain that I I feel like is starting to crop up a little bit more often these days, just as advisory firms continue to to grow and build up, which is the advent of of advisory firms having COOs, chief operating officers, which uh, you just historically really didn't exist in advisory firms. Like I, uh, most advisory firms, you go back twenty or thirty years, was you know and an advisor uh, who went out and got clients and back then probably just sold them stuff uh, and a bunch of administrative staff who helped support the paperwork and all the administrative that goes with implementing a lot of products with clients. And over the past 20 years, like we've seen this shift to more recurring revenue models, AUM models, subscription models that allow advisors to start building recurring revenue, hire bigger teams because now you can actually hire people whose sole job is to service the revenue and you can pay them less than the total amount of revenue. So you now have a, a business with uh, margins and opportunities to reinvest. And if you do that long enough, you can make a pretty big business. Uh, a lot of advisory firms, even that are billion plus dollar firms, really wasn't much more than two or three partners who could each bring in uh, uh, 10 to $20 million a year of new clients. And they did it for 10 or 20 years. And you know it's Twenty to thirty million dollars uh, uh, a year adds up to a half a billion dollars over ten or twenty years, plus some market growth, and suddenly you're at a billion dollar firm. And that's great from the growth of the business until you get down to you need a lot of people to actually handle that many clients and that much assets and that much revenue. And most of us didn't get into this business to manage people. We got into it to to do the client thing. We just ended out with a lot of people if the business grows to a certain size. And so there's this, this advent, I think, particularly over the past 10 years of firms starting to try to hire chief operating officers to deal with all this like operations and systems and people stuff that starts cropping up when you have a lot of people in your business. Uh, and it's still such a new role because so so few advisory firms, I find, really have a true COO role. And so I just today I'm I'm excited to delve deep into just what like what does it really mean for an advisory firm to have a a COO, a chief operating officer, and like what does that person actually do in an advisory business? And I think to start the discussion, I'd I'd, I'd love to just literally start it right there as as someone that's been down this road, you have a society for COOs, which we'll talk more about. You've, you've been in the chair itself. Like, What exactly does a chief operating officer do in an advisory firm? So the joke I, I, I've been saying a lot lately, when I was 14 years old, Eddie Van Halen was my hero. And when I was 40 years old, Mark Tabergian became my hero because I think he was, I feel like he was the, the first, at least he was the, the first voice I really heard talking about practice management, talking about everything you just said about the, the evolution our industry is going to. And so I've just tried to, with PFI advisors, I've just tried to sort of continue what what he started. And we've really honed in on that specific role. He was talking a little broader, just practice management in general, how to run a firm, how to run a business. And we've really honed in on the COO role. Um, that that title fr frightens some advisors. They go, "Boy, that sounds expensive." So if, uh -huh. if, if, I was going to say, like, I yeah, that sounds <laughs> that sounds like a very expensive non-revenue producing uh, hire in in the firm. So 
If it makes people feel better, we can say director of operations. I actually started, that was my first title and then graduated to COO. Um, So if, if, but it's, it's really in my mind in the RIA space, the COO, the director of operations, even called operations manager, it's a, like you said, non-revenue producing uh, professional at the firm who is, whose primary role is not to go get clients. It is to run the business, handle uh, the technology. Uh, handle vendor management, and I've I've started saying quite a bit. Seventy five percent of the COO's job, in my mind, is is HR. Uh, while those advisors and RIA owners are out of the office most of the time, uh, meeting with existing clients and meeting with prospective clients, the employees need to look to somebody <laughs> uh, who's sort of driving the culture and who are they reporting to, and who's who's sort of the uh, uh, the model that they're, 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 uh, looking to. So it really turns into this director of operations slash COO person. So you, you defined a couple of different, there's this like scopes roles within the, within the business there, there's sort of technology and, and vendor management, right? Mm -hmm. Like what, I guess that's everything from what, what tech are we using to run the business? What tech are we using to serve clients? Just like the IT needs of the business do, do. Uh, do all the team members have an email address and a working computer yeah. and all that good stuff? So there, there's like a there's a there's a chunk that is technology. There's a chunk that is HR, right? So people people uh, uh, who who do the people report to? Who's making the calls in the business when the uh, when the advisor isn't there? And just all those core HR functions, right? We have to we have to hire people. We have to compensate them. We have to manage benefits. We have to handle payroll. So a bunch of those functions that add up to a non-trivial amount when you get a, a larger team with with uh, one or several dozen people. So is there is there more? Like, are there other other aspects, or is that really the core that we should kind of think of this as? It's like the the technology system stuff and the HR people stuff. And then I think there's I, just as a catch all, I call it business administration. So quite a few of these director of operations slash COOs at RAs, they, they're also handling compliance. And if they're not the named CCO, um, I was a dual hatted COO slash CCO. If they're not the named uh, uh, chief compliance officer, they're really working hand in hand, uh, shoulder to shoulder with the compliance officer. Most RIAs, their compliance manual is the closest thing they have to an operations manual. Uh, the compliance manual is saying, hey, we meet on a quarterly basis to check best execution. We you know, verify that billing is done correctly, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So the, 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 the COO is going to be very involved in that. Um, and then while there, these aren't marketing professionals, I think the client experience, figuring out who your ideal client is and what the service offering is, I think a lot of that falls uh, on this person as well. Um, who are we serving and how are we trying to serve them? Because then from there, that will drive, well, what type of technology systems do we need, right. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of just use as a, as a catch-all, I say business administration, but but there's a lot of other components outside of just the tech stack and HR. When I, and I guess in the business administration context, I'll presume uh, like just fi- finance reporting functions are 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 in there as well. Is that part of administration? Like keep the books, or usually at that point, probably like uh, manage the person who's keeping the books or the exactly the, uh, so, the yeah, accounting like firm that's said, keeping with, the books. 
Yeah, just like I said with this, with this, you know, maybe they are or are not the name CCO. They're working very closely. Maybe they are or are not acting as the chief financial officer as well. Um, a lot of times, the COO is is processing billing, so the revenue of the firm starts there. Maybe they're not the one digging into QuickBooks and balancing the the, the P and L and that sort of thing, but they're working very closely uh, with that person, and then you know managing the budget, obviously um, figuring out how much do we spend on HR, you know, on our staff, and how much do we spend on technology? Um, do we have uh, uh, it in the budget this quarter to do a new marketing campaign or whatever it may be. The, the COO touches a lot of those areas as well. Well, and per your discussion, I guess just it's it's the it's all the running the business stuff that a lot of advisors don't necessarily have as their strength because we'd rather be out there serving the clients and getting new ones and and sitting on that end of the business. But if it grows to a certain size, like some someone has to deal with all this other stuff, like it still has to get done. Someone has to deal with the nuts and bolts, but also, I mean, heck, as a business owner myself, I sort of fall into this trap too. But a lot of RIA owners, you say, well, what are your goals for next year? And they kind of look at you blankly and they say, more. Grow. Grow. Yeah, grow. Yeah. <laughs> I just grow. want more of what we did this year. And, and so I found the COO, a good COO, is asking, well, what do we want more of? Um, you know, again, getting, and you've written quite a bit about this, you know, just figuring out who your ideal client is. What is the right client? Of course, when you start your business, you'd kind of take any client you can, but is this the year we've grown now where we're actually going to start saying no to certain clients under a revenue number, under an AUM number, whatever it may be. I feel like the COO is, I don't mean to say it badly, but it's sort of the adult in the room <laughs> that's that's asking these questions and and challenging the advisors who are uh, rightfully so, you know, they're just focused on client service and and business development, but asking some of these higher level questions of well, what is it we want more of and how are we planning to grow next year? So you you'd mentioned earlier that like different labels for this name, uh, different labels for this role, you can call it chief operating officer you can call it director of operations you can call it operations manager so yeah. are 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 those like are those fully analogous or are there are there differences like between between those i would say as you roll, go up the the chain so to speak up to that coo role that's where you get more of these strategic uh, uh conversations um so maybe your director of operations is more involved in the tech stack and a little bit involved in figuring out the roles and responsibilities of the uh, of the team. Then they kind of graduate into they're they're working a little bit more on really defining roles and responsibilities. Who's doing what? Um, uh, when are we hiring? Figuring out exactly you know is it a revenue number when we figure out when we're going to hire. Uh, uh, just you know, I've uh, on our podcast where we interview COOs, I say, hey, "How do you know when to hire?" Well, I, it, sometimes it's a it's a metric, and other times it's 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 just I walk around the office at six p.m. and if it we're packed, I go, "Hey, it's probably time to hire." <laughs> so maybe it's just a qualitative metric that you're looking at of when to hire. But uh, I would say as you go up the 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 chain of command up to that COO, you get more into the into the strategy of the firm. So how does a firm know it? needs one or like when 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 should you be going down this road i think it's as the and i don't mean to simplify it but as the overwhelm on the advisors uh continues to grow right it's it's i just can't do it all i can't manage the clients that i have and prospect for more 
and have the employees uh, reporting to me and get the, you know, why is the performance report not right anymore? <laughs> Somebody needs to spend time digging into that. Uh, our internet seems to go out at 2 p.m. every afternoon. Why is that? I don't have time to figure it out. Um, it, the more often they're saying, I don't have, I just don't have time. I just don't have time. That's, that's, and again, I'm not trying to simplify it, but that is a pretty good <laughs> indication of, hey, we probably need to bring in a business manager, director of operations, COO, whatever you want to call it. Do you see a pattern of a common size of clients or revenue or number of team members where where this crops up? Like, is there a is there a business size threshold, or is it just purely a personal like when you when you just can't take it anymore? And we all have our own personal tolerance levels. As a consultant, I'm supposed to have the exact metric, and 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 I've always been bad with benchmarking, just because it it a lot of times depends on the size of your clients. You know, you've been asked this question a million times: How many clients can one advisor handle? And and you know, we all say around a hundred, give or take, but that give or take is <laughs> where all the magic is. Is well, do you have ultra high net worth clients that have? on average, 34 account numbers in their household, and they're super right. complicated, and you're dealing with the business managers and the lawyers and everything else, you might only be able to handle 50 clients. Uh, are they more mass affluent and, and smaller clients? And you've got them pretty much on models. You can probably get up to 120, 150 even. Um, so same thing with with figuring out when you need this, this person. I'm guessing it's probably around five employees uh, you know, at full-time employees underneath the advisors, somewhere in that range. Um, it, it, it definitely turns into uh, some complexity around who should be doing what, what are the roles and responsibilities. Um, a lot of people reach out to us and say, hey, we need to, to hire a new person. Can you help us with the job description? And I said, I can, but can you give me job descriptions on who you have? And they said, well, no, they've been here for 10 years and they've just sort of morphed into the roles they have today, which I get. And I love that they've grown into the role they have, but well, we kind of got to start there. Well, who's doing what now <laughs> before we can figure out what the sixth employee or the fourth employee, whatever it may be, uh, happens to be. So um, it's it's as the complexity, I wish I had an exact number for you, but it's, it's just uh, as the complexity of the business uh, uh, increases and the, the owner is feeling more overwhelmed. Well, I mean, it, re it reminds me of the old saw in the in the management world, which is you know, good managers often struggle with more than about six to eight direct reports. Because mm -hmm. at that point, just if you're really trying to be involved in your team members and growing them and developing them and 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 keeping tabs on what they're working on and, and getting them unblocked and whatever it is that they're trying to solve for, like just there's only so much time in the in the day, in the week, in the month, in the year to handle that. So just managers often start topping out at, at six to eight team members. And if you're an advisor founder and you also have a hundred plus clients and business development and management responsibilities and all the rest on top of that, yeah, I would kind of envision like by the time you're at five full-time employees and heading towards six, like, you know, you're 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 almost there on what managers start to top out at when they don't also have a hundred clients and run the business. Yep, right. Which which means you might actually be be beyond the pale at that point. Yep. That's exactly right. But do you see advisors at like five full-time employees literally hiring a COO as the sixth, or is that more the point? Like it may it may be uh an ops manager at that stage because the business is is only so big at this point and and like COOs come later. 
Yeah, I think I, th- I think that's probably right. It's ops manager slash director of operations. We we worked with uh, an advisor recently. He was right around that five full time employees, probably two hundred and seventy five million somewhere right around there of, of AUM, and uh, he he just said, I can't, I can't breathe. Right. I, I've just hit this, this, I, I, there's so many things that I wish we could get done around here and we're just not doing it. Can you help me, um, with the, the job description, um, the hiring of this, you know, can you be one of the rounds of interviews, uh, for me so that I know I'm hiring someone with the right, uh, a background. And so how, because I'm sure you've had this conversation from time to time, like how do advisors get comfortable with the cost of this is usually not a low cost person who is not revenue producing. Like yeah. just mo- most of us historically, like the first few hires are pretty consistent. It's uh, people that leverage my time to grow the business more or advisors who actually get clients and grow the business more. Like the the only hires we tend to make early on are grow the business or give me time to grow the business. Yes. Uh, and I suppose arguably to some extent, operations managers still function the same way. It's going to free up free up some time for you to do more things. But I find a, just a lot of advisors really start to struggle when you get to, wow, like this is a lot more expensive than than simply hiring an administrative assistant to you know, leverage my time by getting the scheduling off my plate. Yes, you're right. But they really should be viewing this as that they're going to allow me to grow the business. Uh, I, I, meaning the advisor, I'm speaking in the terms of the advisor now, I don't have to deal with payroll anymore, just the processing of payroll and reporting. You know, people say, oh, I have a PEO, I've outsourced uh, payroll. Well, you're still being asked as the advisor without a director of operations, you're still being asked, well, did anyone take vacation over the last two weeks and reporting that <laughs> to the PEO and, you know, uh, uh, checking hours and that sort of thing. So freeing up that, uh, the employees now are reporting to this person. So uh, they're not sitting outside your door anymore while you're on the phone with clients or in meetings with clients. Um, and then just all the the minutia around the the, the technology of the firm, like I said, the, the, the internet's not working properly. They're going to deal with that. The website isn't loading correctly. Uh, all of these things that are on the, 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 the shoulders of the advisor until they make this hire, the, you, you, I'll push back on some of them and say, I understand that this is a big hire for you uh, and it's scary, but are you really telling me you can't make up their salary if we give you 50% more of your time? Do go uh, uh, deal with your clients in a in a in a more holistic fashion, which hopefully will will lead to referrals and just the the down uh, downright um, business development efforts as well, freeing you up to do that. You should be able to uh, recoup the expenses of this of this hire within the first year. So, in that context, like, can you help set expectations for us? Like, what what should I expect to be? paying or to, to budget from the business manager end if if I wanna if I want to make one of these hires if I want to start going down this road it's 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 a little tough to say because it's always dependent on geography uh, cost of living etc um, sure. and the size of your firm but um, I would say that director of operations is going to be in the you know 75 85 thousand on the low end and up to you know 125 thousand on the higher end uh, and then COOs Tip, you know, full fledged COO. I typically say budget as a, as a as a 
earmark budget 200,000. Now, some parts of the country, that's your base salary. Other parts of the country, that's the, 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 the annual salary is a little bit lower than that, but with their bonus, that's going to get them to 200,000. But uh, I would say it's, it's, it's give or take, uh, it's, it's around $200,000 for a, a chief operating officer. All right. So then two following questions for that one. So I, I get costs vary by just ge- geography and different different costs of living in various metropolitan yeah. areas or when you're not in an expensive metropolitan area. Yeah. You said it also depends on size of firm. So how, how does size of firm play into the comp decisions for, for this role? Well, it's just the complexity and uh, of the you know how many employees uh, are we juggling? How many different people are going to be reporting to this person? That sort of thing. That's what I mean by the the, the size of the firm. Because you're right, they're they're not dealing with the clients directly, but just the the, the complexities of the business. Uh, how many clients that that again? A lot of times they're taking on compliance as well. Um, a lot of times they're taking on billing. So billing, the complexity of billing is going to be directly related to how many account numbers you have. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's, that's where I say the size of the firm will, will, will drive uh, a little bit of the, the cost as well. And so help us understand a little bit more, you know, is one thing when you said like the director of ops may focus a little more on just tech stack and core yep. people roles. The COO is a little more strategic, but now we're getting down to, I feel like now we're getting down to brass tacks. Like, okay, I get like one does a little bit more of this and the other does a little bit more of that. Yeah. But now we're saying like, and, you know, basically their director of ops is like a hundred grand plus or minus something. And the COO is 200 grand plus or minus something. So now that we're down to, this is a hundred thousand dollar yeah. difference in, in staffing. Um, what, what again do I get for the more expensive one? <laughs> <laughs> so Calculating metrics, uh, uh, I guess a lot of your guests have talked EOS. So think about the scorecard, right, that the advisors now are going to be getting. This COO is going to be calculating a lot of these metrics um, for that scorecard so that the uh, advisors are able to, to know the health of the organization at the drop of a hat. This person is managing all of all of these metrics, figuring out client segmentation, figuring out um, different service offerings. Um, so many firms struggle with the scale. Hey, the advisors just keep bringing in uh, clients that don't quite fit. Uh, we're starting, we always go below our minimum and offer 100% of our services. So a, a good COO on that higher end is going to solve that problem for you. And that's never easy. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Trying to tell uh, advisors, salespeople to turn down business is never easy. But just figuring out how the business is going to scale, how it's going to scale appropriately, that's where you're getting uh, the big bang for your buck with this position. Interesting. And and so where do you where do you find these people? If I'm an advisor, I'm like, okay, this sounds like a big investment, but yes, I'm feeling this pain. Um, like, okay, I'm I I got to hire someone to help me with this. Like, where do you go, and how do you figure out who to hire? So there's pros and cons to a couple different ways you can go about it. Um, I wouldn't say it's a mistake, but where a lot of advisors go is, well, I need a good operations person, but I'm going to pull them from a completely different industry. And and I totally understand where you're coming from. Hey, we found our perfect COO. We've been looking for him for years. This person uh, ran a McDonald's franchise for years or, you know, is c- coming from mm-hmm. uh, uh, the retail space and and 
that's all well and good, and they're going to understand uh, HR. Um, the, the 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 struggle you're going to have with that type of a person is I'll get questions from those types of people of I just got out of this meeting. We're talking about trading muni bonds. Why aren't we just running the muni bonds through our rebalancer? Like they're just not quite understanding right. uh, the nuances of our industry, right? Um, right. Um, I don't understand exactly what our employees are 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 doing uh, every day. I'm used to selling widgets, and I'm not used to a uh, a people business, that sort of thing. So um, that's that's a very common area, though. I just need a good operator. Um, the other area, again, pros and cons. You find someone in our industry. But maybe hasn't been a, an exact, you know, I've been running an RIA. Uh, oh, this person's coming from Morgan Stanley. We all know that the RIA space is, is run differently than a firm of that size. Um, uh, I'm going to find someone coming from Vanguard or uh, uh, one of the asset managers, or I'm going to find someone from one of the tech vendors. Uh, this person worked at Orion. Uh, they're going to know a lot. They're going to understand the industry. They're going to know who the players are. They'll understand, obviously, the tech stack. But there might be some nuances of, of, okay, now I'm trying to manage a seven-person firm, and I've never really done that. I don't have the managerial experience. So um, again, pros and cons uh, uh, to each, but typically it's I found a good operator but doesn't know the industry, or I found someone that knows the industry but doesn't have the managerial experience. But that's typically uh, uh, where the, these people are coming from, and then they have to kind of grow into the – get molded into the role. Okay. Well, so if I don't want to, if I don't want to have those struggles, like because I just need a person that can do that can do it. If I yeah. had a lot of time to hire them, I would have done that a few years ago and not need to listen to this episode of the Financial yeah. Advisor Success Podcast. So, like if I if I need if I need someone that's going to get up to speed faster, I'm trying to find someone who can who can ramp up more quickly. Like what what do I do? Where do I go? This is one of the reasons we've created uh, the COO Society. Is what, back when I was placed in the the, the director of operations role, uh, I tried Googling, <laughs> how do I run an RIA? How do I do operations for an RIA? And never found it. And so we've tried to create online courses that explain how a rebalancer works and what it is. And think through the org chart of your firm. What are the pros and cons of having a centralized back office versus working in pods where each advisor has their own little service team? Uh, uh, who are the major custodians? What are the uh, differences between them? Um, how do you integrate the, the data flowing from the custodian into your performance reporting provider? That sort of thing. So we, we've tried to create just the, the, the basics and then um, we do uh, monthly calls with all of the members of the COO Society where they can ask uh, our team or each other, hey, how are you handling this? Um, where are you finding uh, your you know, latest CSAs? Um, uh, what benefits are people asking for? You know, we're so worried about the great resignation. Are you guys offering more benefits? So there's, there's great communication among the members of the, of the society. Um, or, and not to be too salesy, so, you know, the other where to answer your question, you obviously get old LinkedIn, you find people that are in the role today and try to pluck them off from, from other, uh, from other firms. Interesting. So, so in essence, like for firms that are in this position, you get, you get two choices. You can try to poach talent from another firm 
where they they have someone in this role who's already been doing it and you yep. can try to get them over to over to your firm with whatever you're going to do to either entice them away or find someone who may be unhappy with where they are and, yep. and and get them get them while they're in leaving get them while they're in motion or you have to accept you're either hiring the operator with no industry experience or the industry person with no operator experience yep. and have to start training them up for which you guys have been now been trying to build a program to to teach them to do that. Correct. Because you, you've coined the phrase, the accidental business owners, the advisors themselves, the RA owners themselves aren't really in a position to train this, this role because <laughs> they're not, that's why they're hiring for it because they weren't able to do it themselves. Hey, I know how to handle clients. I know investments, but I don't know how to tell you the best way to uh, uh, send data from a performance reporting tool into the rebalancer or, you know, uh, uh, write the right job description for our next hire, that sort of thing. So, yeah. Interesting. And so for, I guess, for, for firms that have hired or have a COO who maybe still is hitting some speed bumps and trying to figure out how do we actually, like, how do you do this role well? Like, how, how do you pick the right CRM? How are you supposed to try yep. to integrate in with the other tech? Like, what is the typical comp? levels for YAR CSAs at different levels because I'm trying to build out my career track at my firm. You're trying to build the the COO society to be the the community place that the COOs can go to actually learn how to do because basically the the thing you didn't the thing you didn't get when you were looking for how to do it when you were a COO back in the day. Exactly. So, so again, I was director of operations and chief compliance officer, and and this is 2008. We're talking about. I was able to Google how to be a CCO, and I came across, and I'm not affiliated with them, but I'm a huge proponent, and I always uh, advertise for them. <laughs> uh, NRS has an amazing program, the IACCP program, Investment Advisor Certified Compliance Professional. And I didn't care about the certification. I didn't care about those letters on my business card, but I needed a crash course on what compliance was for the RA community. Uh, we had a compliance consultant, but I didn't even know 2008 as, as a green uh, uh, compliance officer. I didn't even know the questions to be asking my compliance consultant. Right. So I was able to do this online course and get at least the, the lingo and the basics and then I felt confident in working with my compliance consultant. So we've I've really mimicked COO Society from, from the operations perspective after that IACCP program. Um, I'm trying to solve the, the, the same things and, and give confidence like I got from that on the compliance side. I'm trying to give confidence to these director of operations and, and chief compliance officers. And, and so for... Uh advisory firms that want to have a COO in COO society like how does that work or what does it cost or what like how do they get engaged it's just month to month we just have it linked up to Shopify so they just put a credit card in at $600 a month um uh or if they want to do an annual subscription um it would be 6000 for the year so 500 a month so saves a little bit of money if they want to buy an annual subscription but most are just on a month to month uh, uh engagement with um uh through Shopify um and like I said they're they're getting the the new courses come out every month we've got the the monthly um uh, the monthly member meetup, we call it, uh, the Zoom call with all the members. And then we have a discussion forum that, that looks like Slack, basically. Each course has its own channel, to use the Slack terminology. So they go into that uh, uh, channel and, you know, under 
under HR processes and say, hey, uh, what PEOs are you guys using? Or they can go under the CRM channel and say, hey, we're, uh, we're thinking of making a change. What, what CRMs do you guys like? And so other members can jump into the discussion forum or, or me and my team obviously are, are putting things in there as well. So how did you come to this like path of you know, teaching and training COOs and having a, uh, a society for them? Like I, I, I know you've had some experience with this in, in the past yourself, but can you share, us, share with us more of the journey of like how, you, how you came to the point that this is the program you offer into the world? How did you get started? Yeah, so stumbled into it, uh, into this industry. Um, 1997, graduated from UCLA. Uh, with nothing more than an interest in there was a <laughs> there was a sandwich shop in Westwood that I would go to as a senior at UCLA that always had CNBC on. Uh, and I would see the ticker going by and I knew I didn't know what the heck that was, <laughs> but I was intrigued by it. And I said, I kind of want a, a, a finance job. That was about the, the, <laughs> the extent of my grand vision. I think I want a finance job. So when I graduated, well, it, was, it was the late, this is. You said 1997. It's like it's the 90s. Like the tech, the tech market is booming. Yes. Everybody's everybody's day trading online. Correct. Like we are, we are getting pretty heavy into like this. The the finance space was on the rise. Yeah, and I just thought I want to get into that industry and and learn what the heck those the, those uh, numbers scrolling on the bottom of the screen mean. So uh, I graduated with with no job, but through a headhunter found out there was an opening at Merrill Lynch. And I said, well, this is perfect. Merrill Lynch in Beverly Hills. And again, I just stumbled into the perfect situation. This hotshot team of four advisors had recently left Goldman Sachs and joined the Beverly Hills branch of Merrill Lynch. Those four advisors were doing more business than the entire branch of 40 advisors. So I was hired as Hey, we got to keep these these four guys happy. <laughs> uh, they're frustrated. Wow. They knew how to do business at Goldman Sachs. They're now here at Merrill. They don't know who to call for an options trade. They don't know how to place a mutual fund trade. They need to do block trades. They need an operations point person. So, in Merrill's grand vision of their own, they hired <laughs> someone with zero. So they, so they hired. <laughs> so they hired a twenty-two-year-old, correct, straight out of college with no industry experience to be the point person for their biggest team. Correct. That's yep. That's how these things happen, Michael. <laughs> awesome. I, well, you know, you at least they were willing to commit some resources to support the team. Yes. Yes. And so uh, I, I, as a 22 year old, I did realize that I had just stumbled into something special. And I remember going home and sitting at my little Ikea table in my little tiny apartment and thinking, boy, I've got a really great opportunity here. I really need to make the most of this. So I started going, you know, I found out uh, I'd go in it you know, we're on the we're on the West Coast, so the market opens at six thirty our time. So I said, "Well, I got to be in before the market." So walked in at six, and boy, there's quite a few people here. Uh, so got in at five thirty. Well, there's still some some advisors are still here. So got in at five. Oh, there's still one guy that gets here earlier. So so at twenty two years old, I was like, I got to get in at four thirty in the morning. I want to be the first one in the office. Um, again, it was a lot of trading at the time. So I was going through and trying to reconcile all the trades from the day before and checking cash balances and that sort of thing and making sure the advisors felt confident before the market opened that, you know, what the, what the client portfolios look like, et cetera. And I just sort of worked my way up. I worked with them for eight years and sort of 
worked into today, we call that, I guess, a, a service advisor. I was, while they were out getting clients, uh, the, the, the clients knew that they could call and ask for me, hey, Matt, what's my uh, portfolio look like? What's, the mar- what's going on in the market? Um, so I was, I never had to go get clients and I wasn't, I was really just helping non-discretionary clients execute trades. I wasn't really providing any advice at that point, but, uh, so I was with them for, for eight years. And then in 2005 lost my mind and I left the golden goose and said, I'm going to go sell insurance <laughs> again, not, oh not and vision, but said, I'm going to leave and go do this. And, but I was at least smart enough. The one vision I had Why? was- Like, where were you? I mean, did you get wooed away? Did someone give you an amazing pitch? Like, why Why make the change? It was really silly. Uh, I, I just wanted to try something else and see if I could could stand on my own two feet. And so so tried, tried the insurance thing for a couple of years, but was at least smart enough to say, keep in touch with them. So like, I'd see a Wall Street Journal article- uh, about one of their clients or just about something that I knew that they were, you know, some industry that they were kind of interested in. I'd sort of send them an article just to make sure that I was sort of staying on their radar. So two years went by and then they called me and said, Hey, this actually is going to work out great. We know you're miserable selling insurance. We're here at Merrill Lynch. You don't have a Merrill Lynch email address anymore. You're not a Merrill Lynch employee. We want to start an RIA. But we don't have the time, energy, or desire to learn how to start an RIA. So why don't you, insurance boy, <laughs> why don't you in your spare time go build our RIA for us? And when it's ready, just let us know and we'll come we'll come join you. And so that was oh, that so what an, I fell into this whole RIA space. What an interesting position. So they they knew you had the operations experience and were someone that they that they trusted because you'd done it with them for eight years. Correct. But at that point, you're outside of the entire Merrill mothership. So like there's no Merrill email address. You can do yep. all the, like you can do all the work and correspondence. It's not going to fall to the corporate email address that someone can oversee. You're not right. even like, you're not even at risk of getting in trouble with Merrill because you're trying to build a breakaway firm while you're at the firm. Cause you're really not at the firm. <laughs> you're Matt you're Sullen, already you're out. RIA. It had nothing to do with these guys. Exactly. <laughs> uh-huh. So exactly. All right. So how does this, so how does this play out? Like you, you're like trying to figure out how to create an RIA for this huge Merrill team, like on spec. I mean, how, how does this work? Yep. I, they needed an an LA office. We were dumb enough, which I do not recommend to anyone. Uh, you know, Oh, this is great. You're no, you're not associated with Merrill Lynch anymore, Matt. This is so easy. Well, we were dumb enough we put the RIA offices eight floors below the Merrill Lynch office, same elevator bank. <laughs> so I was like sneaking in and out of the building as we're building out the office and getting furniture delivered and everything else. So I do not recommend doing that. That was dumb. And I'd worked there for eight years, so they all knew me. Uh, so I, I couldn't so be at seen. At some point, they're going to ask like, hey, Matt, what are, you doing? Like, what are you doing back here? I thought you were off selling insurance. Correct, correct. So, uh, but yeah, I had to figure out phone systems and, 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 you know, do we have, you know, this is uh, 08 we're talking about. So uh, uh, do we have on-site servers? Do we, are, you know, in the cloud was still kind of new. Uh, how does custody work? How does compliance work? Had to just sort of stumble through all of that for several months, figured it all out. So we had an LA office uh, <laughs> on the, in the same elevator bank as the Merrill uh, office, and then also had to build a, a Northern California office. Um, and then in May of 08 said, okay, guys, we're ready. And so then they did the, 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 you know, the classic 
resignation. And then that's what became Luminous Capital is uh, we started with a, a billion seven of client assets uh, in in May of 08. And we're off to the off to the races. And then that's when I was director of operations and, and chief compliance officer. Interesting. And so relative to what we talk about as the the breakaway broker trend today, like this is really early Correct. to be <clears throat> to be leaving a brokerage firm in 2008. Like that trend really didn't get underway for the industry until the 2010s, basically like after, yeah. after a lot of people's stock retention deals became way less valuable when the market crashed in the financial crisis. Um, and a lot of golden handcuffs kind of evaporated that, that helped to kickstart what what we talk about today is the wirehouse breakaway movement, but this was pretty unheard of in two thousand eight. Yeah, they were they were very early, and it was, it was again May of oh eight, and some some clients were saying, "Boy, this really sounds risky." I don't know. And then what was it? September? I should know. I think it was September, wasn't it? When B, B of A, September of 08, B of mm-hmm. A had to rescue Merrill. So those few clients that hadn't come over said, "Well, I guess we're going to jump ship." Because <laughs> uh, oh, uh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, so. Ha- yeah. Having been a pre-Merrill breakout and then watching Merrill and Wall Street implode and Merrill getting sold to Bank of America and the crisis was a very effective, like, correct. are you sure you don't want to leave and come independent it, with us? Correct. <laughs> uh, yes. So, it, you know, at the time, people said, oh, geez, did, did you guys know that there was problems at Merrill? Lynch? No, it wasn't that. It was more just a desire to be business owners, et cetera, et cetera. So the, so the, the business gets – you know, launched in Breakaway in in May of two thousand eight. <clears throat> so I guess just can you paint a little bit more of the picture for us of I, I, I get one point seven billion in client assets, but what was this from a like number of clients or revenue or number of team members? Like, what did this look like in practice? Seventeen total people. It was four main advisors, um, uh, and then thirteen. Um, employees that were supporting uh, the advisors. They had, um, I mentioned it earlier, whether, you know, do you centralize your operations or do you work in pods? We had, uh, I call them pods, you know, each advisor had sort of their own, they had a vice president under them, which was like the service advisor, and then a, a client service associate. Um, some of them had kind of an analyst that was sort of between the vice president and the client service associate that was basically a trader that was that was rebalancing portfolios and everything. But we had sort of four separate service teams for each of the uh, individual advisors as, as they were building. Um, it was still, while it was an RIA, again, like you said, it was kind of early on, it was still a little bit of the wirehouse uh, uh, mentality of each advisor sort of ran their own book, uh, uh, their own business. So what happens from there? Like, how did the how did the breakaway go? And and living in the in the newly independent world. So I'm clearly biased, uh, but I think that it was one of the more successful organic growth stories. The uh, those four advisors gave themselves each 250 million of net new assets as a goal. They wanted to add a billion a year and pulled it off. We went from a billion seven. To six billion in four and a half years, purely no no tuck-ins, no other advisors joining. It was all Holy through uh, referrals and just. The, they, Where does that now? I'm, I'm going to presume like we're we're working with some pretty affluent folks. So like, correct. Two hundred and fifty million of net new assets is not because they got like two hundred and fifty millionaires. This is going to be more like they got a 
a half a dozen to a dozen people that have 10, 20 million each? Is this the kind of households Correct. that they were working with? Yes, that's exactly right. Yep. Okay. But still, that's a, an absolutely monstrous number. So they're adding a billion dollars a year and, and basically doing this straight through the financial crisis or perhaps expedited by the financial crisis because there were a lot of if, – if you were in ultra high net worth space, there were a lot of really interesting conversations in 2009 and 2010 of – so you know you picked a you picked a mega Wall Street firm and it nearly almost blew up the system. Like, why are you there and not working with an independent like us? Which, when there weren't very many breakaway independents yet, that was a really unique story at a really good time to tell it. That's that's that was the you're you're very good, Michael. Yes, that was a lot of it. It was you know today. Uh, I tell advisors that are doing the, the breakaway movement today, you can't just throwing up the fiduciary name on your website isn't going to do it anymore. <laughs> but right. back then, especially with but back then, it actually was, worked pretty good. <laughs> it worked pretty good. People were very nervous. You know, the the the, the, the nasty Wall Street had had bankrupt the country, et cetera, et cetera. And so we were sort of the you know riding the white horse, and we we've, we've gone outside and become independent because of all the the conflicts of interest, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that definitely. Definitely helped uh, with the story for sure. So huge growth tear. I'm assuming that means like firm gets bigger, staff gets bigger, like role and complexity gets bigger for you as well. I mean, how how did the business evolve if it went from under two billion and nearly six billion in the span of a couple of years? Yeah, we did rip out the tech stack a couple times uh, as as we were sort of figuring things out, and and uh, we we still kept the headcount relatively uh, low. We 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 went from from like you said two to six billion. We doubled headcount. We were at thirty four uh, when we were at six billion, um, but added. Um, had to figure out how to add different roles within each of those pods. Again, we we kept that pod right. structure throughout, but okay. Uh, advisor A, his team now needs two vice presidents, you know, two service advisors and three analysts and two CSAs or whatever it may be. And advisor B, you know, what, what, what does his pod structure look like, et cetera. So, um, I was spending a lot of time, uh, we were right down the street from UCLA. So I was, I felt like Norm from Cheers when I'd walk into the career center at, at UCLA, Matt, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. capitals here. They're, they're hiring again. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So, uh, so how does the business change? I guess from just from your end, as uh, I don't know if you were still director of operations or transitioned more formally to COO during this time period. Like, yeah. how did the role change for you? It was just a, a lot more uh, um, employees. It was a lot of the hiring. Like I said, we we in, invented a, uh, a internship program. Um, so just sort of figuring all of that out, uh, on the fly. And then the, the, the pod structure was, was interesting. And, and, uh, I think it does work for the, the level of clients, the complexity of those clients. It's hard to have a more centralized operations, but, um, it was a lot of my time was spent trying to load balance between the pods and hey, can I grab this CSA from that pod over to this pod for the next week? We're onboarding a couple new clients over here, and and uh, so it was like I, I said early on. You know, I, I think seventy five percent of the COO's job t- turns into HR, and it was really a lot of just figuring out who was doing what, uh, not only just from a, a roles and responsibilities, but just on any given day, <laughs> uh, who was who was working on on what projects and what new clients, et cetera. Interesting, interesting. 
So, so what happened after this? So uh, 2000, like four and a half years, it goes from yep. under two billion to six billion. Yep. So they were very early on this breakaway movement, and then they were very early on in the the whole monetization <laughs> of their okay. RIA. So 2012, they sold the business to First Republic Bank, which was First First Republic has has just exploded in terms of. Uh, their wealth management business. And, and again, I'm biased, but I think a lot of it was built on this big headline of, of bringing on the luminous capital acquisition in 2012. Um, so sold, sold the business and then became wealth advisors within, within first Republic in 2012. Interesting. And, and so I'm presuming then like that was a big, I mean, as you said, a monetization, like that was a big payday transaction event for the, for the folks that had founded the, the firm and gone through that transition. Correct. Yes. And so even today, uh, that a lot of people still point to that because it was a relative, you know, when you're, when you're trying to uh, sell the independent model to wirehouse advisors, a lot of people, even in 2022, they still point to that luminous capital because it was so fast. In four and a half years, they were able to leave Merrill Lynch, grow the business aggressively, and then monetize. So that's still today. Uh, a, a kind of the blueprint of hey, if you if you go independent and and own hundred percent of your equity, et cetera, it can do great things <laughs> for for the for the uh, owners of the business. And in um, and what was do you know what the revenue base was at that point? Because I'm assuming like ultra high net worth clients, this was not like six billion of re- of assets charging one percent exactly generating was, 60 million of revenue yeah it was it was uh just under 50 basis points was the average fee so it was it was 25 to 28 something somewhere in there so uh, like high, high 20s yep. high 20s and millions of revenue yeah interesting so so what came next for you did you like go go with the deal in a first republic and continue this path in first republic or did did you did you go your own route at this point? So I went my own route. I uh, I really had fallen in love with the RIA space. Um, and again, think of me as a, I wasn't client facing. So I'm the COO and CCO and First Republic had a COO and had a CCO. And so I thought, well, I don't know how this is going to end for me personally. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, probably probably not as as promising when they've already got those roles you know it, correct I know it, it is one of the challenges for folks in the in the operation space when firms buy other firms and they talk about quote synergy cost synergies yep. cost savings like the biggest place they usually save costs is you've got an operations infrastructure and I've got an operations infrastructure and we only need one of these yep. uh, and you know either either you're the one that gets to stay or or not. Correct. Correct. And they, they were so fantastic you, and very, very warm to me and everything. It wasn't, there was, there was no writing on the wall. You're really not going to be needed here, but I just, it, it wasn't as a certain future for me as, as the, the rest of the luminous capital group. Yep. So, uh, I, uh, reached out to focus financial and said, Hey, you're a big aggregator of RIAs. I think at the time, they were they probably owned 30, 35 RIAs. That, uh, I think they're in the 90s now. But uh, 2012, they were probably you know, kind of in the 30s. Um, hey, you're you're uh, you're running a lot of uh, firms and and acquiring a lot of firms. And I've I've worked at a successful firm. Maybe I can help from an operations perspective from the home office. So uh, they took me up on that, and I uh, joined uh, Focus. Our deal closed December of 2012, and by March of 2013, I was living in New York City, 
and sitting wow. at the home office of, uh, of Focus Financial. Yeah. And as a, uh, I think my title was vice president of operations. And so I uh, uh, worked with the mostly the point person I was working with was the COOs of the various focus firms and just helping them think through operational efficiencies. Again, the same, same old stuff that the, the roles and responsibilities of their firms. And uh, that was sort of my first foray into consulting uh, of, of working with the various firms. And then they're there, as, as everybody knows, they're very acquisitive. So a lot of those firms were doing tuck-ins. And so that I would come in as, as kind of boots on the ground and help um, uh, integrate some of the businesses into the, into the existing focus firms. Interesting. So from the, I guess this is from the focus perspective overall, you know, they've, they've got stakes in by then like 30 odd RIAs. And so, and, and typically some fairly large firms. So if we can bring Matt on board and he can make incremental changes and improvements in some of these very large firms, like that's a, that's a really good ROI for focus with, uh, with its financial structure and ownership. You know, if you can, if you can help these folks figure out how to be 1% more profitable in a multi-billion dollar firm, we own a big stake in like that, that goes really well for everybody here. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yep. I know the industry looks a little bit different now because this is still, we're seven, eight years ago, but what, what kinds of, I mean, just in practice, like what kinds of like systems or changes or things were you working on and implementing then? Like what was the, what was the hot thing to help, help firms execute more effectively or change to or implement in, in the mid 20 teens? It, well, again, it's it's a it's a inorganic. So again, I, I love my the, the career that I've stumbled into. The, the I feel like the luminous story was one of the the more successful, if not the most successful, organic growth story. And then focus, I get to go to one of the most successful inorganic uh, uh, uh-huh. engines. And so it was it was really all about at the individual focus firms. It was all about scalability and. Uh, what what PFI we call kind of buyer prep of helping firms think through, do we have the infrastructure in place to do tuck-ins and could we bring on other advisors and, and support more clients, more uh, assets, et cetera, overnight through an acquisition. So it was a lot of just making sure that the the firms were scalable um, for, for M&A. And then we also were, um, we did do a few uh, breakaways as well, where we would under the focus umbrella, we would help firms leave the wirehouses and start firms. So, so the, obviously the, the the work I had done with Luminous uh, on the breakaway side, I was uh, uh, tapped to do a lot of that work as well. So, in in practice, for firms that needed to go through buyer prep to get get ready mm-hmm. to do more mergers and acquisitions and tuck-ins and all the things that were only just getting going then, there's a lot more yep. of them now. Yep, just. What did that mean in practice? Like, what what did firms actually need to do to be ready to acquire advisors and tuck them in? So it it comes down to: Do we have the right technology uh, solutions in place? And more importantly, are we using our technology appropriately? So it's one thing to say, "Well, we've chosen Tamarack." I'm randomly just throwing out one one example, right? We've chosen Tamarack as our uh, performance reporting tool, but uh, what is the process around that? Do you, uh, do you have a streamlined performance report that you're using or is every advisor customizing it? Um, can you produce, uh, the performance reports quickly after quarter end? Do you have the right billing processes within Tamarack? Um, are you using the rebalancer, uh, uh, appropriately, or even do you need the rebalancer? A lot of firms get sold on, uh, you, you're starting your, your RIA and you just told, well, you're going to need rebalancing. 
and they, they were sure great we'll buy that and then you realize well they really manage all all the assets through smas so there's really nothing for the ria itself to be rebalancing right you're basically mm-hmm. just journaling cash into an account number and then the sma managers using their rebalancer to actually uh uh buy the the, the portfolios right. so uh you know we sometimes we're stripping out technology that's unneeded other times we're just getting the, the technology to be work uh, appropriately very rarely uh do you really you know oh tamarack isn't the right solution we need to go to orion or or oh you're using adapar don't use adapar you should be using black diamond it's usually uh not we, telling people you've chosen the wrong technology. It's more about, are you using it uh, appropriately and is it built for scale? Interesting. So much more in the direction of how do you actually get the most out of your tech as opposed to doing a lot of changing and swapping of tech. Correct. And then and then clearly, do we have enough bodies um, to, uh, you know, if, if we were to acquire uh, and we're going to bring on, a, you know, another thousand account numbers, do we have enough bodies to, to support that? Um, obviously, you're bringing on uh, the support staff of whatever firm you're acquiring uh, and merging into your business. But um, part of the sales pitch, right, to an, an, an advisory team that's going to join an, an existing RIA is, hey, we've got people that are going to handle HR. We've got people that are going to handle compliance. We've got people that will handle right. billing for you. So does the, the buyer have uh, the right people in place and, and, and are they going to be able to uh, execute on all the promises they're making during that M&A pitch to the uh, joining firm. So so you're digging into firms with a lot of how do we actually like use our tech better, train on it better, adjust our systems and processes to get the most out of it. Uh, so it sounds like you did that for a while at Focus, but obviously not not continue. You're not still there either. Yep. So what what ultimately happened with Focus? So did that for two and a half years. Uh, we had both of our uh, children were born in New York City. Um, so we were by Southern California standards Our, as you can imagine, our apartment in Manhattan was a shoebox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yep. Now had two children, we thought, and all of our family, the grandparents and everything were in Southern California. Um, this is pre-COVID. So I said, uh, hey, Focus, do you think I could move back to Southern California and work from home? And they said, no, you really need to be in the in the office. And so um, Reese, my my wife, who had been an, an axe, who had been an advisor with AXA advisors, she was whispering in my ear, you know, um, you've had all this great experience with all these different focus firms and looking at all the different tech uh, stacks that they're using and and she says, I've got the experience in this industry. We could start our own consulting firm, you know, and and run it out of Southern California. <laughs> so when I went to Focus and said, hey, can I work from, from Southern California? And they said, no, we'd really prefer you to be in New York. I said, okay, well, I quit. I'm uh, moving back to Southern California. <laughs> so uh, it was really driven by a geography decision more than an a entrepreneurial decision. But uh, Reese is more the entrepreneur than I am. And she was whispering in my ear. Uh, and so in, in an effort to get back to a larger, uh, a larger house <laughs> for, yep. for the two kids and uh, be around the grandparents, we said, let's, let's take a swing and start our own consulting firm. So that's when we and started. It, and, it, and at this point, you're almost eight years in, I guess, between um, operations work at Luminous yep. plus the operations consulting at, at Focus, having already done another eight years of the operations work when you were at Merrill to build the relationships with the right. people who eventually right. came back to you. So 
had some you great got, You've got yep. 16 plus years of hands-on. I've done a lot of operations in a lot of different types of advisory firms. And Reese is saying like, you don't, you don't have to have Focus Farm you out to consult. Like just stand up your own consulting firm. You can get paid directly. That's exactly right. Yep. She, it was, it was her whispering in my ear that, that got, got me to actually do it. Yep. Okay. So, so what happens next? So you like, what, what was the initial consulting business? What did you, what did you create? What did you launch? So, uh, so, you know, so I'm the, I'm the business builder, right? I've built luminous capital and I've helped with all these focus firms. So, so getting uh real, we got, we had a Regis uh, office space. So getting the office space and figuring out uh, our technology and all of that worked great. And our website uh, went up uh, in September. Uh, we, we, my last day of uh, focus was in July and then, you know, getting across country and, and finding an apartment or a house to, to, to rent and et cetera, et cetera. So our website went live September, uh, end of September of 2015. Uh, and I thought, okay, we're, we're off to the races. And then I remember very well the day of uh, sitting at my desk and uh, uh, thinking, okay, well, the website's live and my phone's working and the computer's great. And huh, <laughs> we don't have any clients. <laughs> what, are, what are we going to do? <laughs> I'm like staring at the phone, but it hasn't exactly. run. Like, yeah, there, there, to me, there, there is a weird effect for anybody who's ever done the launch of building a business, especially when you build it from scratch. Like you do all this like prep work and effort and stuff to get it, to get it launched, like just to get it launched, get it going. Like I've made it. I've got like the website and the marketing materials and the entity and the bank account and the like the 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 name and the logo and like the, there's all this stuff that you do and then you finally get it launched. It's like okay, I'm now a business owner. I've left my old job. I have a yep. lot of time. I have no clients. I'm just sitting here staring at the wall and now suddenly feeling like really depressed because I walked away from my old job and there's and like nothing is happening here. Like what, what have I done to myself? That was the moment of panic. And then again, I'm a, I'm a nerdy operations person. I've never had to go out and get clients. So I was, Oh my God, what do we, uh, <laughs> what do we, what are we going to do here? <laughs> so, well, uh, so in a moment, I want to know what you did. What, like, what do you do? But first just help us understand, like, what was this, like what was the consulting service that you were offering at at launch like what what was the initial target like we want to do blank for blank what yep. was it going to be it was it was two main service offerings it was hey advisors if you're thinking of leaving the captive environment and want to start your own ra from scratch without joining a platform or or an aggregator etc and you you really want to start a firm from scratch we can help you uh, for a consulting fee, we can help you navigate that whole process. Uh, and then it was the, um, you know, again, sort of similar to what I was doing with Focus is, hey, if you're a 20-year-old RIA and you're thinking through uh, efficiencies and, hey, revenue goes up every year, but 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 profitability doesn't seem to be moving, uh, do we have the right people in the right seats? Are we using the right uh, uh, tech? Technology? Are we using it in the in the right way so we could just do traditional consulting with with existing firms as well? So those were our two main uh, service offerings when we launched. Okay, so just directly to the two things that you had been doing all along. So if you're yep. if you're a wirehouse and want to if you're at a wirehouse and you want to break away and you actually want to stand up an RA from scratch, I know how to stand it up from scratch. Or if you're an existing RAA that's been around doing this for a long time and you're trying to figure out. 
how do we get more out of our tech? How do we use it appropriately? Like, how do we make the 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 scale the scalability thing show up that's supposed to show up, but it's not showing up because we keep getting bigger and our revenues, our margins aren't getting better. Yep. Like you'll you'll help them with that. That's exactly right. Yes. So I'm I'm struck like those are somewhat different in it's just like scope and style. I mean, I breaking away from a wirehouse to me, like that's a really intensive build and lift just to do it and stand it up. And then like once you're done, you're done. Existing firms that are trying to refine existing tech and systems, like I, I could I could need someone to, like I could need a relatively short engagement for that because I just want you to come and look at my stack and make sure it's good. Yep. That could be a really long thing of like help me build out training programs and system and process and refinements over over an extended period of time. So was it was it that different in practice in just like the scope and the nature of the engagements you would get from each? Yeah. And, and some ways you think, well, starting from scratch, that must be the harder one. And 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 to some degree, I mean, there's a lot of education there and, and these advisors just haven't thought about a lot of these things. And again, like, how do I, I'd never even thought I had to uh, do billing. I actually have to process the billing. Uh, yes, you do. <laughs> You're the business owner. Uh, so there's a lot of education there, but in many ways, that that very famous, well, this is how we've always done things. Why do we need to change that mentality of those existing RAs sometimes makes those projects even even harder. But at the at the at the root of it, it it's still, you know, uh, uh, the same uh, core tech stack. You need a custodian, uh, whether we're picking one f- f- to, to start your business or we're figuring out how to work with a custodian better. You need a performance reporting tool. You need a client portal. You need a trading and rebalancing tool. You need a financial planning tool, et cetera. So um, it, it, there, there are a lot of overlaps in those two types of, of projects. But it's a little bit more of just the the education around the advisor mindset of, of who you're working with, and and how did you price this? Because I mean these are these are big these are pretty big scope engagements. Yes. So over time, we've we've sort of uh, on the breakaway side, we've we've come up with uh, a, a, a second kind of tier there where we call it affiliated advisors, an advisor leaving. LPL, Raymond James, Ameriprise, they're like three quarters of an RIA as it is. And a lot of those engagements are a lot less uh, involved for us. Those are more, well, I can make the phone calls to these vendors and, and, and ask the questions. I just need to call you afterwards and say, hey, I'm being told this and I'm being told that mm-hmm. from the custodian. Is that right? And what questions should I ask? Whereas the wirehouse advisors, they don't even, they need me on every one of those calls because <laughs> they don't right, even right, know right. what questions to ask of the performance reporting vendor, et cetera. So um, our breakaway services, uh, we don't charge by the hour, but it basically comes down to, you know, how many hours of work is this going to be? Um, we may wind up working with a firm for over an, a year to, uh, you know, six to eight months before they've launched and basically six to eight months after they've launched. So that could be a year long project. So um, our engagements on that side range anywhere from forty thousand dollars of the hey, can I just call you and ask you some questions as we're as we're thinking through this, all the way up to four hundred thousand dollars. If it's I need you on every single call, I need you in my office for three three to four weeks once we've launched, uh, helping us with the custodial paperwork and everything else, and very very labor intensive. So um, it's a project fee either way, but the the uh, the engagements are priced just based on level of of uh, uh, of work we're putting into it. So sizable transition when you're at forty thousand up to four hundred thousand yep. dollars. But again, if you're a if you're a billion or multi billion dollar wirehouse team that's doing five ten plus million dollars of revenue, like 
you know, that that's a cost of doing business for making a transition to the independent channel. And, you know, if you're, well, if you'll be the next luminous and you're going to sell it for a hundred million dollars <laughs> after, after a while, like that, uh, that $400,000 consulting transition fee is going to look really, really good as a long-term business decision. Yeah. And I, I hope they're sleeping better at night. No, you know, getting all these questions answered as the, as they're going through this, this, this process, there's, it's a, it's a pretty scary, uh, undertaking. So, um, uh, they're usually very happy to uh, to pay for the for the guidance, and then and then what do engagements typically look like on the um, on the on the RIA side? So to do just sort of an analysis of hey are are you running the firm correctly? Or do you have the right tech stack in place? Are you uh, using that correctly? Do you have the right people in place, etc.? We we call it an operational diagnostic. Uh, we've got like a ten page questionnaire we'll send ahead of time. Each page is sort of a different sort of system or process. How do you onboard clients? There's a whole page of questions on just the onboarding. Uh, what performance reporting tool are you using? How are you using it? Um, are you billing on a quarterly or a monthly basis? Do you bill in advance? Do you bill in arrears, et cetera? Right. Um, so just from the questionnaire, we get a good sense of where the pain points are. Then we do, uh, and Zoom's been great for this. We used to do them on site, but now um, doing Zoom interviews, uh, the firms actually like it better. We don't have to uh, have them pause their business for three days while we're in their offices. We can just, hey, we'll do two interviews today via Zoom, and then we'll do two interviews tomorrow, and maybe next week that'll work for, you know, we'll interview your compliance folks or or your CSAs on on how they're interacting with the custodian, whatever. So that typically takes about a month for us to do the, 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 the analysis of the questionnaire, the interviews, and then we'll come up with, you know, we're a consultant, so there has to be a PowerPoint deck. <laughs> uh, so we'll Absolutely. give them a nice, uh, you know, findings deck of, hey, this is where we think you can be working better with the custodian. This is where we think you can be doing better with financial planning. Um, the client onboarding, this is, you should think of this and think of that, et cetera. And some firms say, hey, we'll just take the deck and we're, we'll uh, implement ourselves. And others say, um, hey, we, can we just do a month-to-month retainer after you've done your initial analysis? And can you stick around and help our folks implement these changes? And if it takes four months, it's a four-month uh, uh, engagement. If it takes you know, six months, we've had some go 18 months, and we've had some, you know, they're just, there's just a couple months. And so how do you, how do you price or scope that? So I guess the, for the diagnostic, at, yeah, at the diagnostic so. is uh, again depending on how many interviews we're going to be doing and how big the, the the firm is. Those range from fifteen to twenty five thousand for the diagnostic, and then the retainer is um, typically right around five thousand a month. Um, no minimum, no max. Just as long as we're we're uh, adding value and making uh, progress through those those uh, implementing of those changes, we'll we'll stick around on the on the month to month retainer. Interesting. So, so you launched this in in 2015. Yes. So, so, I, so now take me back there. Like, I guess just how how does it get going? I mean, where where do you start finding clients initially? Um, uh, and 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 how do you actually get going when you're offering this for the first time? Particularly since this wasn't really a thing yet. Yes. So we've we've gone the the. Uh, Again, I'm not a great salesperson. I've always been more on the operations side. So I've gone more the content marketing uh, strategy. The, the, the biggest problem with sales, is, as you know, is, you know, are you in front of the, the person at the time they have the need? Yeah. And I've just found that, that blog posts, uh, white papers, um, uh, um, you know, we, we've eventually over time, we, we've, we've fallen into the podcast. We've got our COO Roundtable podcast. But through the, through the content marketing 
Um, that's, that's, I found the easiest way to be and, uh, you know, to keep people, uh, aware of our services. And then when they have the need, I'll get a call and say, man, I've listened to your podcast for two years or boy, I've been, I've, I've read your uh, white papers for years or I've been reading your blog, um, seeing you speak at a conference, whatever. Um, we just never had the need until today. Now we're, we're actually thinking of getting into the M&A game and we really think we should do that operational diagnostic and make sure that our firm is ready and poised right. for when we're going to do a, an M&A engagement. Or again, just, just, uh, uh, we've had some, some employees leaving and, 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 uh, uh, we want you to do an, an uh, you know, a diagnostic today and help us just think through who, who should be the next hires, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so we've, we've really gone the, the, the content marketing, pers- uh, uh, route and then, um, having that great network of all the focus firms and, and just all the, 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 the different RIAs that I, uh, had been associated with, um, just kind of relying on my network of, of finding, and, uh, um, uh, clients that way. And did one path take, like, just did one of these get more traction than the other? Right between the like the RA offering and the wirehouse breakaways, like who 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 showed up? Uh, you know, I knew all along that we um, we did hire a marketing firm in the in the in the you know to kind of do a launch, so to speak, and they told us I don't know if this was I'm still to this day years later was this good advice or not? They said you can't confuse the market; you got to go with one service offering. And so I said, well. The breakaway side is the sexier thing we're doing. <laughs> uh, that probably gets people talking about us more. And so, I, you know, again, was it a mistake? I don't know. Because I knew we would only do, and it's been just played out almost exactly right. We do about one big breakaway a year. Uh, there just isn't that many firms that are that many teams that are saying, I want to start an RA from scratch. The, the, the move into the independent channel, into the RA world is very real. And there are, there are teams coming, uh, over the, the wall, uh, all the time, but the vast majority of them, and I knew this back in 2015, the vast majority of them want to join an existing firm and they do not want to go through the headache of, figuring out real estate, figuring out a 401k plan for their employees and payroll and benefits and everything else. So, um, uh, yeah, I guess there's just, uh, there's just kind of a mentality self-selection thing. Like if, if you have spent your whole career in the wirehouse environment where the, the mothership provides, like you tend to be pretty comfortable in environments where the mothership provides, which means like truly going out on your own, uh, into the proverbial wilderness of, build everything entirely from scratch in the in the RA channel like for the people who really love independence they love that they get to build it from scratch yeah. make it exactly what they want it to be but if that's your proclivity you probably wouldn't already have 15 to 25 years logged in a wirehouse like if you that's if right. you stayed there that long you tend to like things that are a little bit more built already for you and you can just do your thing so so you end up at a platform you end up at an aggregator you end up at, at some of the other um, some of the other offerings that are out there. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, you know, if I'm talking about it, it probably was a mistake. We went to market uh, as, hey, we're a breakaway firm, knowing I was only going to do one of those a year. So those were that was sort of how we got known early on. Was oh, it's a they're they're the, the that breakaway firm that helps uh, advisors start an RA from scratch. But I always knew, and now you know, jump forward to 2022, our bread and butter really is working with existing firms, and then sort of I guess in a a, a, a uh, cross between the two, 
Um, we've really gotten involved, as you can imagine, with all the, the M&A headlines over the last several years. We've been doing a lot of, of M&A consulting, not from a David DeVoe type of perspective. We don't do deal structure. Right. We don't do valuation work. But, hey, I'm a buyer. And we've just acquired a firm and, oh, geez, I didn't really think about integration. This is actually kind of complicated. Yep. I'm using Salesforce and they're using Redtail. I'm using Adapar and they're using Orion. What, which of the systems should we should we use? What do we do with all these people now um, from both firms? Can PFI, Correct. again, we'll do that sort of operational diagnostic on both firms and figure out, I like this process of the buyer. I like this process of the seller. I like this technology of the buyer, this technology of the seller. This is what the, the combined firm should go with. So we've sort of, we've been doing a lot of that over the last couple of years as well. Oh, interesting. So basically like acquisition integration yes. consulting. Yes. Like exactly. that sounds like a mouthful, even as I'm saying that out loud. Yeah. Like, I guess that's, that's what it is. Like you acquired, you actually have to integrate them in. It yep. turns out integrating the acquisition is more complex than you realized. Uh, and, and you, and you all are doing a lot of work right there. Yes, exactly. And some of our early engagements, we, um, the, the way you just worded that made me think of it on a breakaway side. Maybe they didn't hire us to do the break. Hey, I figured out my tech stack. Hey, I got the clients transitioned. We actually got a couple of our engagements weren't full on breakaway engagements, but they were, hey, we're four months old and the clients are here. We still haven't set up our performance report. We haven't done we haven't done billing yet. <laughs> the, this is, you know, you just said on the on the acquisition side, wow, integration's harder than I thought. Some of these advisors said, oh my God, running a, an RIA is harder than I thought. I was able to do the break. I was able to set the firm up, but now I don't know how to run the darn thing. PFI, can you help us there? So so that was some of our early engagements as well. So what what surprised you the most in the the journey of just trying to build your own consulting business back into the advisor community? <sighs> I think um, what surprised me most, I've got two different answers for you, <laughs> um, uh, on the just dealing with RIA owners, I think um, I think 2022, we're in much better shape. This was sort of how we started our conversation. I think this practice management uh, mentality has, has, has landed much more in 2022 than it did in 2015. I was still struggling. I thought the mm. RIA mentality of, hey, I'm running a real business here and we need to either bring in a COO or we need to hire a consultant uh, to help us run the business. I was I didn't realize we were a little bit more behind the eight ball than we than I thought in 2015. Um, but it's been great to see the the evolution over the last seven years, uh, seven plus years of so, I really so it's one of those like the the market is coming and catching up to you like I yes, think so. you, these businesses keep growing. They keep getting more complex. They they really never get simpler. Like there's no point in the growth cycle where it gets simpler. So enough time of RA is compounding, and there's just more and more firms that are hitting complexity points of saying maybe, maybe I need some help with this. Yeah, I think uh, RA owners self-identify as financial advisors first, and business owners like. Fifth, <laughs> uh, and so I in those early days I would do my uh, my pitch around RA efficiencies and operational uh, scalability, et cetera, et cetera, and they would listen very politely uh, and and stay quiet. And then when I would finish my my pitch, they would say, "So if I give PFI money, do I get clients?" 
And I would say, no, <laughs> we're not a marketing firm. Oh, well, I'm not interested right. in anything that's not bringing me clients. Uh, right. I think, it, you know, so that was, a, a, it was more challenging in 2015 than I uh, had anticipated. And then, so what was the second piece? You said there were, there were two, like one is just RIA owners seem to be more interested in the practice management mentality yep. now than, than back then. So the other piece is just more on a, on a on a personal note, but I know we like talking about the the challenges of 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 running a business and perseverance and everything. So uh, 31 days after our website went live, our uh, six month old daughter woke us up in the middle of the night, uh, breathing very. And, and that, that woke us up and, and we, we went to her, her uh, bassinet and, and her hands were pumping in front of her uh, uh, face. She was having a seizure and, and we were, to, you know, so we, we take her to the doctor the next morning and we're told well, as, well, a, as know, a six, as a six month old, six month old. Yeah. She, she, had, she was having a seizure and we were told, um, uh, well, you know, the, the brains, all these synapses and things are, are coming together and seizures aren't that uh, uncommon and, and it could just be kind of a, a, a fluke. And uh, Reese, mama bear said, no, we're not leaving. <laughs> uh, you're going to run, you're going to run tests. And so they, they did a, a EKG, they, they put the probes all over her head, turned the machine on and Layla was just hanging out, uh, smiling as can be. But as soon as they turned the machines on, uh, doctors and nurses came crashing into the room. Uh, she was, they said, she's crashing, she's crashing. And she was just smiling uh, as, as could be. Uh, we, we did not realize um, Layla passed all of her tests in the hospital, but um, her brain did not develop uh, or it wasn't developing. Um, and she was having four different types of seizures at any, at any given time, uh, whether she was physically showing it or not, her brain was firing. Um, and so that led to, so this is 31 days after launching PFI advisors. So you're saying, you know, what were the challenges <laughs> and surprises yeah. early on? Um, Reese and Layla didn't leave children's hospital for six weeks. Um, as we just more tests and, and the news mm. just kept getting, kept getting worse. Her, um, so again, her, her brain hadn't developed. And so we, over those six weeks, discovered that her optic nerve was fine, but uh, she couldn't, there were just the brain, there wasn't enough brain to interpret sight. So she was blind. Her eardrums and everything, the, the ear canal was fine, but the, the brain couldn't interpret sound. So, you know, you think you have a healthy daughter, um, you're trying to get a business off the ground and you're told, oh, your, your daughter uh, is having four different types of seizures at all given times, uh, can't see, can't hear. We, over again, over those six weeks discovered that she couldn't regulate her swallowing. So feeding tubes went in. Um, so it, it just, it, it became uh, <laughs> uh, uh, challenging to say the least. I was, you yeah. know, trying to uh, get the business off the ground. So this is, uh, the, the seizure happened in uh, late October. And so uh, Impact is our biggest conference of the year. And I'm, I'm trying to get the you know, consulting business off the ground. So November of that year, I went to Impact and, and one of my old coworkers from Focus comes up to me and he says, you, he knew what we were dealing with. He says, you shouldn't be here. And I said, no, no, Reese is with her and everything's fine. The doctors are there. And he goes, no, I'm looking at you you look like hell. <laughs> he's like, you're not, you, you think you're pushing through this and you're just not. And, and, uh, he says, I, you're, you just don't look good. You need to go home. Um, so poor Layla, uh, struggled for, 
uh, about two years, uh, a little less than two years, um, going through all of this as we're as we're getting the, the business off the ground. And uh, ultimately, unfortunately, just the brain just as, as she grew older, her brain couldn't regulate her 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 body. And she ultimately passed away in uh, July of, of 2017. I'm so sorry. Oh, it's, thank you. Thank you. So she was our little, we named her our warrior princess. And, uh, and uh, she had a, has an older brother. Luke was uh, three when she, she, uh, she passed away. So we had, you know, you, everybody kind of jokes and says your, your business is your baby. So we had trying to get PFI off the ground. And then we were, we were dealing with, with Luke and, and trying to keep him as, as, you know, a normal childhood as possible through all of this. Um, so that was a, uh, a, uh, uh, a challenge that was I was not expecting <laughs> in getting the uh, the business off the off the ground. So how like how do you I don't process that? How do you manage to that? Yeah, it's um you just you you just wake up every morning. I mean, uh, uh, you just keep pushing forward, and we we just would would look at Luke all the time and say we just we've got to keep going, and um, the the one of the struggles with, with Layla is there was no, uh, other than her brain hasn't developed, there was no diagnosis. There was no name. There was no, you know, uh, she has Layla syndrome or whatever. Right. And, and children with Layla yeah. syndrome have a life expectancy of blank or to Layla syndrome, you know, the, their liver will yeah. give, you know, we just had no, it was, uh, no pun intended, but we were flying blind through the, through the whole medical journey. Right. And, um, because because they couldn't even give you a prognosis of like how this tends to develop or evolve or not evolve or just like how this how this goes and kind of what to expect. Correct. There wasn't even they couldn't even give you that because no one had something like this. Yeah, and and one of the four seizures they they uh, they called it a, a mind eraser, and they said every time she has that seizure, she just her from a brain development perspective, she goes back to newborn first day. Uh, just there was just zero brain development going on. Um, so that was our, our biggest, you know, hope and chat, you know, Hey, and we did a, we studied a lot of, you know, brain elasticity and can a different part of the brain learn certain things and could she learn sight? And we, she had, um, a, a speech therapist and, and, uh, vision therapist. And we, we tried everything we, we could and, and no one ever used the word terminal. We didn't know that she was going to, uh, pass away, you know, super young, uh, because of it. But as she got older, um, for some strange reason, they, again, they never were able to explain it to us. Her seizures, whether they were literally painful for her or it was the brain interpreting it as pain, but her seizures, uh, turned painful for her. And so she wound up, uh, poor thing, just, just writhing in, in pain and, and crying out. Um, and so that was as that, that condition got worse. We ultimately had to put her in, in hospice care because the, the pain uh, management drugs that CHLA was giving, we, we maxed those out and they said, we, there's, there's nothing left for, from, from a pain management perspective for us to, to give her. So we ultimately put her in hospice care, but even when she was in hospice, it wasn't, no, no one ever used the word terminal. Um, but she just ultimately, um, it was, it, she just couldn't regulate. So in the meantime, like you're, you're still trying to get clients and do breakaways and operational diagnostics for advisory firms, just with, with this running in the background, the background for, 
for two years of getting the business launched? Our first big breakaway client was up in in San Francisco, and so I spent. Uh, it was May of May of seventeen. Yes, it was. It was May of two thousand seventeen. I was I was in San Francisco for a month, and then uh, Reese actually came up for the last week. I was on site and was helping with some of the paperwork and things and getting the business off the off the ground. Uh, and then we came home uh, right after Memorial Day, and that was basically when we put her into into hospice care. So yeah, it was, it was, um, you just, you just wake up every day and just keep pushing forward. And, and then, you know, again, trying to, trying to manage Luke and, and, uh, through, through all of this, it was, uh, it was, it was, people say starting a business is the hardest thing you'll ever do. And of course people say, uh, you know, saying goodbye to a child is the hardest thing you'll, you'll ever have to do. And we were, we were sort of managing both, um, simultaneously. So is there a point where you just say like, why am I doing this? Like, let me just go back and get a, get a salary job somewhere doing something where I, I don't have to think about building the business on top of the rest of this. Well, it, it it's interesting. You're, 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 you know, it's, it's cliche as that is you're your own boss. And so it, parts of it were, were helpful in that, um, you know, mm. It, I, I didn't have a boss to to report to, and I didn't have to be any. I didn't have to be anywhere at any given time. So if there was um, uh, mm. our our very first client that we signed up in 2015, I actually uh, uh, got the the verbal commitment. I was just pulling into the parking structure of Children's Hospital, about to go underground, and had to pull over on the ramp. <laughs> And, wow. uh, because I would have lost cell service going into the, into the, into, and, and got the, you know, okay, great. We're moving forward. Uh, I'll send you the contract. Uh, so, you know, being, be, being able to do that was, had benefits, uh, as opposed to, you know, having to go to an office every day for a, for a quote boss. Right. Um, the, the first RIA biz article that I guest wrote, I actually just hand wrote, uh, I, I bought a notepad. It, at the gift store of children's hospital and wrote that, uh, over, uh, Christmas time, uh, during that first six week period where, where Layla was in the, was in the hospital. So wrote that, uh, uh, bedside, uh, at the, at the hospital. So it, parts of it were I was, I being a, a business owner allowed us to spend a little bit more time with her, but it, there was just that, that stress of no, 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 uh, paycheck coming in, obviously in the early days of our business. So, so is there anything now, like, you know, now you wish you could go back and tell you from seven or eight years ago as you were launching the business? Like, what do you know now you wish you, wish you knew then? Um, I think, uh, underestimating the, uh, the sales nature of it. Right. Uh, I, I sort of, again, I told the kind of the funny story of, of cleaning up the desk and, and, and moving kind of paper from one side to the other and thinking, okay, we've launched our business. This is great. Uh, uh, you know, quote CEO. Everyone loves the CEO title, but sales is a big a big part of that. I think uh, I, I've 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 learned the sales side of it and and gotten better at it. But uh, I probably should have uh, you know prior to launching the firm uh, been a little more educated on the on the sales side. So, was there something you like you did to learn and figure it out, like a books you wrote or courses you took or something, or was this pure 
school of hard knocks school of hard knocks i think you you kind of realize um again uh, those early pitches of uh advisors saying well do i get clients out of this like just realizing what language works and what language you can say and pinpointing what uh, an advisor's or an ra owner's pain points are um right. and and explaining how our offering is going to solve some of those as opposed to i just assume that an ra owner cares about business operations, <laughs> right. uh, having to reframe it a little bit more towards, um, hey, this is going to help you grow the organization. This is going to help you attract advisors. This is going to help you uh, service clients better. Um, just just figuring out the, the language of how you're um, uh, explaining your offering. Um, I was very poor at that in the early days. So I guess in that context, like what what advice would you give to advisors who are in the you know stuck in the throes of trying to figure out how to how to scale up a firm i i have as an operations consultant you know it's it's funny how much i'm spending time talking to advisors about you really need to understand who your ideal client is who you're serving and what your mm-hmm. service offering is um i i just think that sort of that same mistake i was i was presenting my offering in language that made sense to me i think that a lot of advisors are are you know and we 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 all talk about it you've talked about it at nauseum as well you really look at from one ria's website to another we're all saying the same things and you know what's making you different and what who are you serving in a different way that is going to uh uh land clients and prospects faster. Um, hey, we're the RIA that that focuses on you know the, the example you always love to give, bass fishermen, right? Fishermen was too yeah. too, too wide. Um, um, I've interviewed on our podcast a firm that that's that focused on doctors and one of their value propositions wasn't even investment related. It was we can we understand new doctors and 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 the the process of you getting a job at a hospital, we can help you negotiate your contracts. Yeah. Like this is an RIA. This is on an RIA's website. You don't see that everywhere. <laughs> so you, I just and, and that different, like that's differentiation, right? In the truest sense, exactly. like that's different. Yep. So I just think that we 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 as an industry, we all need to to really be honing that and and figuring out what makes us different. Who are we serving? How are we serving them different? And making that a big piece of of our of our messaging. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success and just. One of the themes that come up is the the word success means very different things to different people. And so you've been on this journey of building up a successful consulting business. Well, I guess and now as COO Society grows as well, um, I don't even know if you think of yourself as a consulting business or like a, a COO Society platform. I don't even know what you could, could call that, but as, as, the, as the dual channels of the business are building, yep. uh, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, I mentioned I'm a UCLA graduate, and so you're contractually obligated. If you went to UCLA, you have to mention John Wooden whenever success comes up. <laughs> for those, that for those that don't know, John, <laughs> John Wooden was uh, a UCLA's basketball coach in the 60s and 70s. He's considered to be uh, possibly the most successful coach in, in history. They won 10 championships in 12 years. They won seven championships in a row. This is college sports where his his roster changed every year. Uh, at one point, I think it was like a three-year period. They didn't lose a game for 80. They won 88 straight games. And, uh, you know, people, when, when 
it's it's one thing to achieve success, but what's Im- almost impossible is maintaining success over a long period of time. And so mm. what I think he was so great at, his definition, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but his definition uh, helped keep his teams motivated. He said, success is the self-satisfaction in knowing that you've made an effort to do the best that you're capable of. It's all about putting in an effort to be the best of which you're capable. And so for those UCLA teams, they knew they knew they were better than almost every one of their opponents, but success came down to their level of preparation and their execution of the fundamentals. It wasn't necessarily about the, the final score. If, if they made it about the final score, I think uh, the team could have easily floated through games and still won, but inevitably over 88 straight games, I think they would have had a mental letdown somewhere in there and been embarrassed by someone. So he made it such about, did we play to our fullest potential in in any given week? And so I like that definition for myself as well, because it's, it's, it's all about being satisfied with yourself and, and asking in that situation or with, with that client, did I do everything I could have? Some things are are out of your control and you're not always able to get the end result you want. But if you can look in the mirror and say, well, in that situation, I put everything on the line. There was nothing else I could have done. You can still hold your your head high or vice versa. If if you get lucky uh, every once in a while and you get the end result you wanted, but it's not necessarily a success. If you can say to yourself, you know, I really kind of floated through that project or that that client engagement. Um, So I, I really like John Wooden's definition of success. It keeps me it keeps me humble. It keeps me motivated on a on a day to day basis. Well, thank you, thank you, Matt. I appreciate you sharing it and and joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you. This is this has been so much fun and what an honor for me. So thank you, Michael. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.